Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part 6 and we're starting chapter 11. Chapter 11. The Passage to Vigo. When we took our departure from Bishop's Rock Light at 2am on June 8th, leaving the Scilly Isles and going out into the unknown, I confess I felt afraid. Such is the weakness of mind left me by my ancestors that bad weather seemed able to be much worse here than within sight of land. Belief in the soundness of the arithmetic which was to find our position and which we had been trained to trust vanished with the light of Bishop's Rock. After all, there really was some magical mysteriousness in starting with a machine-found angle, doing curious operations that changed angles to huge numbers, which in their turn were added and subtracted, turned this way and that, and called by half a dozen different names, and ending with a result that wasn't an angle at all. It was magic, and experience only could prove whether our incantations would work. But, by good luck, we were let down gently at the beginning of our cruise, for we had calm seas and soft, favouring airs during the first week out from Falmouth. This gave us ample time to settle down to our work. We got used to a system of four hours steering and four hours not steering, and I got rid of my feelings of scare thoroughly during this period. Then, the constant sun and excellent horizon gave us just the opportunity we wanted to learn how to use our sextant, By the time the wind blew and the waves grew big and the Joan was tossed violently about, we had learned the most important secrets of its manipulation. We had then become able to snap an altitude in a few seconds and feel confident that the angle was as accurate as circumstances and our sextant permitted. And although we both knew how to calculate our latitude and longitude from noon and morning sights, we found that chasing logarithms and have signs up and down the Joan's cabin was a different exploit from looking them out in comfort at home. We made many mistakes this week, and we argued about each one. The mate was the winner of most of these arguments, and he grew far too proud of being able to make seven and eight come to fifteen every time. One day, I put my head out of the cabin in a great hurry. Put the helm over quick. Make all the easting you can. We're miles away to the west, a great deal further than we ought to be. The Joan was then travelling at about two miles an hour, so that there was plainly no need for hurry. The mate coolly suggested that I must be wrong in my addition, or that I had mixed the latitude with the longitude. He offered, if I would take his place at the tiller, to put my work right for me. As he was too large to be bludgeoned, I returned to my calculations and discovered the mistake. We used different formulae, and this provided an excellent check upon accuracy of working. He used low-class second mate's methods, while my ways he scorned as being absurdly highbrow. But when, as weeks went on and we could arrive at the same cuts with position lines using the moon, Jupiter and some of the bright stars with something like familiarity, we began to respect one another. Now, bad seas during the first weeks might have rendered any attempt at taking sights and calculating positions as quite impossible, and this would probably have disheartened us. We were certainly lucky in the start. During these early days, we saw our first Atlantic swell. The waves were big and gentle. You could tell there were waves only by seeing the field of water around slope gently in another direction. They were imposing in appearance because we had never seen them before, but we quickly became used to them. They were perfectly smooth, calm and harmless. 
In their troughs, however, we lost the wind, and this caused the sails and spars to fall frequently from one side of the boat to the other. One day, I lost my best hat. It was Byford's fault. He wanted what he called a lifeline rigged round the boat. To me, it seemed more like a death trap, for I was everlastingly getting caught in it and either half-strangled or tripped up. It caught my hat and tossed it overboard, and although we turned back and searched a large part of the Atlantic for it, we never got a sight of it again. After we'd been at sea a week, the weather changed. A northerly wind sprang up, which quickly grew strong. At noon on June the 14th, we were a hundred miles northwest of Vigo Bay. The wind was blowing hard by that time. The Lancastrian prince passed close to us as I was holding on to the shrouds and making desperate efforts to shoot the sun. Her crew and passengers must have viewed us with amusement or compassion, according to the way they had been brought up. We fought out our position and set our course. Two hours later, I decided to heave to until the weather improved. Stowing all the sails which the Joan was then carrying, we hoisted a reef trysail and let her alone. Byford estimated the wind force as number nine and said it was as bad as the last day of the previous year when we were on the Annie. The next morning, we rescued a pigeon with labels attached to his legs. 22E, November Uniform Romeo Papa, 3946 on the one and Uniform 854 on the other. A racing pigeon. He came aboard during the night. Byford saw him when he looked out at dawn. The bird flew away in terror, but returned when the frightful object had disappeared. Later on, without knowing he was there, I threw overboard a pail of refuse. The bird, lacking in judgment, flew off again, but this time he fell into the water, and being unable to rise, he scrambled and fluttered after the boat. When he came alongside, I reached over and picked him up. He ate of our biscuit and drank of our water, but in return he made a great mess in the cockpit. Later, we had enough water over us to soak him again and again after he had begun to get dry, and so we brought him into the cabin and put him in a box. He at once showed that he was a well-bred bird by leaving the box to perch upon the edge of our pail face outwards. The boat had to be pumped out every four hours or so, for the water under her, over her, and round her had found all the chinks that required recorking. During the third day, the wind became a bit easier, and the water appeared to be smoothing a trifle, but it was not good enough to set sail. We were both tired of it, for the Jones motion did not encourage you to relax. The boat remained mostly broadside on to the wind and sea. The pigeon did not remain well-bred. I was disgusted with him, and I determined not to go in for pigeons. He was ungrateful too, for you'd think he'd have laid an egg or two. Not he. He ate his fill, and he drank his fill, and then objected to being chucked into the cockpit while we cleaned up his guard manure. True, he got soaked and bedraggled by the first wave that splashed aboard, and I suppose he had not been brought up to it. You can't imagine how voluminously that bird excreted. The fourth night was worse than ever. We nailed up the doors of the cockpit lockers and fastened strips of wood along the edges of the trapdoor. We got the sea anchor ready as a possible last resource, and I thought at one time that the trysail had better come down. We concluded, however, to leave it alone till matters grew worse. In the morning it eased again and the sun came out. I got a noon altitude under conditions that made it possible, easily possible, to get it wrong. It was out of the question trying to sail the boat and I did not like even the job of jibing to get her on the other tack. Perhaps at that time we were passing over a bad patch for waves were smashing upon us and leaving their tops over us every five minutes. As far as we could make out, 
We were blown 60 miles southwest during these last three days, and we made ourselves 100 miles west of Muros Bay, which is 10 miles south of Cap Finisterre. The dicky bird ate biscuit like a hungry man and would take it from my hand. If he had but controlled his stern, I should have liked him better. Our bunks were still comfortably dry, but a deal of water got in all round the covering board and through some of the seams. Whenever a wave hit the cuddy top, the water squirted across the cabin under the roof in two places on my side, and as we hove to on the starboard tack, that was the only side which had been tested. The same day, we jibed her round to the port tack, set the storm jib, and moved slowly on a southeast course. The pigeon was a nuisance, not willfully, of course. He looked miserable under the bridge deck, and the place he occupied was fit only for pigeons. I wondered if I might make a little money selling guano. Although we fastened a handsome bamboo perch for him and placed our largest pail under the middle of it, the guano machine refused to stay on the perch or to deposit in the pail. We hove to again at 7.30pm and put up our riding light at the mizzen and turned in for the night. It was almost like bringing up in the haven. The wind seemed as bad as ever and that mode of heaving too, with jib as well as trysail, was less comfortable than the last. It may be that we took the waves at a worst angle, but at any rate, we had got back a bit of our lost easting, and on this tack I hoped we should not lose any more. The sea was confused and the waves were big. They rose up like hills of water, many of the tops being breakers or leaping pyramids. While I was steering that afternoon, one of them broke at the shrouds and smothered the boat from there aft. I got wet, for a pailful ran up my sleeve and never returned. The cockpit was half full of water, and I thought a great deal had gone into the cabin. Thinking that the Joan was about to sink, I began to pump hard, but when Byford put his head up and said he had not seen more than a few splashes, and when I found that the pump sucked dry in two minutes, I went back to the tiller. We rode with our jib till four o'clock next morning. The wind blew harder than ever, and the seas were bigger. She rode well all night, but we took in our jib at four o'clock to ease her. I don't know whether the change made any difference or not. We got our warps out for the sea anchor and prepared to let go if necessary, but I did not want to do this, for we had no tripping line, so that if the sea anchor had proved a failure, we thought we should lose it and our warps as well. Our next step was to make ready to lower the trysail, but we were still determined to wait. I sat in the cockpit and just watched. The waves were becoming a bit smoother and bigger, and when the Joan took them at an angle of 45 degrees, her behaviour was perfect. When she swung round to them to take them a beam or a little aft, her motion was more unpleasant, but at no time did she take any water aboard except, first, what she scooped up on her foredeck, and second, what came aboard when the top of a wave actually broke on her. Each wave, whose top tumbled, roared like a surf on shore, and under the white foam I could often see the shimmering green of light shining through the lifted water. A wave might break or foam within a few feet of the boat, but none of it reached our deck. It appeared to be necessary for the waves to break on the boat before we got wet. We were all three of us wet. One wave I estimated at 15 feet from trough to crest. Many of them looked fearful, but they could all be admired in safety from the Jones cockpit. We did not attempt to take an altitude that day. The difficulty was too great. The pigeon was still miserable, and I wished he was constipated. We were hove to altogether for five days in this bad weather. It was not until 6pm on June the 19th that we were able to hoist our mainsail. Then we set off in a good northerly breeze which lasted for 12 hours. At the end of that spell, the wind dropped, 
The sea was calm and a heavy mist lay everywhere. The pigeon hopped off the boat into the water then, but he immediately paddled back again to be picked up. On Saturday and Sunday, the 21st, we took numerous angles and worked with many struggles at position lines. They fixed us in all sorts of places, and it was not till we got a noon altitude that we felt anything like positive about our latitude. We then sailed east by north for Europe, and on Monday morning we caught sight of the high land south of Vigo Bay. It was pleasant enough to see land again, but being uncertain which part of the continent we were looking at, we sailed in closer for further information. When later in the day we saw the islands that lie at the entrance of Vigo Bay, I offered the mate my congratulations upon his excellent landfall, and of course he did the same to me. It was dark when we drew near the entrance, there was little wind and there was an uncomfortable roll. We hove to till daylight came so that we might see our way in, and then under a warm sun and with a fair wind, the boat sailed gently halfway to Vigo. We made the boat tidy and brought our anchor which we shackled to the cable in readiness to let go, and then we took it in turns to clean ourselves. On the way in, the pigeon promenaded about the deck and finally established itself forward. I was afraid that he would be hurt by the sheets there and went forward to entice him to come aft, but he took umbrage at this and hopped into the air off the yacht. He flew up in the sky and out to sea, and the last we saw of him was a speck in the sky sailing northwards. The mountains and lovely shores of Vigo Bay made the pleasantest picture in the brilliant sunshine, and we enjoyed that sail immensely, although we were both tired and sleepy from being up all night. The wind died away, and we drifted inshore until we could anchor and wait for another breeze. It came up by noon, and we went on till we at last brought up on June the 23rd at the end of the little bay where the town of Vigo stands. We refused all offers to land until we had slept a couple of hours, and then we went ashore straight to the nearest thirst-quenching cafe. And I can still, in imagination, sit there under the shady trees and gaze delightedly at the high purple hills over the bay and the blue water beneath them. Chapter 12. In Vigo Bay A boatload of small boys woke us up the first morning we were in Vigo Bay. They were talkative, dirty, and much interested in the Joan. They became interested in the crew from whom they tried to get pence by wiles. On finding we did not fish, they were first incredulous and then contemptuous. One boy of ten years pulled a homemade hook from his waistcoat pocket. He found a piece of decayed worm in the same pocket and a poor piece of Spanish string in another. Joining these three things together, he dropped one end over the side. I don't think it really mattered which end went into the water. No sooner had the boy decided that the outer end had reached the bottom, then he pulled it up again, and to our surprise, there was a fish on the end of it. The boy smiled, said it was a sardine, and explained that that was the way to go fishing. I tried myself later on, but nothing stuck to the end of my piece of string. We were taken care of by two longshoremen. They guessed that they spoke English, but it was a poor guess. We received from them some useful information about the position of the cheapest beer shops, and they rowed us to and fro and generally behaved as we wanted them to do. The vice-council referred to them as your boatmen, and so made us proud and alarmed. I hoped that they did not expect high wages. They took us off to the yacht on the second evening, and after a search we found the Joan tied astern of the Marquis de la Victoria, one of four Spanish naval boats in the bay. The officer on duty informed us that the Joan had been observed adrift, and that they had immediately sent a motorboat after her, and that she had been tied astern because her anchor had parted. 
He wanted the boat's name and my name so that he could draw up his report to the captain. I thought that they had behaved in a really sportsmanlike manner, and the officer in particular created a favourable impression upon me because he understood my French and I understood his. The next afternoon, I interviewed the captain of the Marquis de la Victoria. He spoke a dialect of French that I did not understand, and he failed altogether to understand mine. He called an interpreter who spoke English, but I did not understand the interpreter's English, nor did he quite get mine. The captain and I therefore grinned very hard and knowingly at one another. He shook hands with me, and by a sign that I easily understood, told me to take the Joan away from the tail of the Spanish navy. Ali Baba then took us to the quay, where we could step ashore whenever we liked, and we were happy ever after. The two hobos then demanded a pound a day for their services. It wasn't excessive, although they were well paid at that rate. We paid them the money in instalments so as to not create a false idea of our affluence. They worked hard afterwards in an effort to recover our lost chain and anchor, but without other success than the rooting up of thick bunches of the tough and luxuriant seaweed that covers the bottom. As I offered a prize for the recovery of the anchor and chain, there were several competitors, but the labour involved quickly disheartened them all. We had to buy a new anchor and a new chain. We asked Ali to find a dinghy for us to hire, telling him it must be reasonable in price and nothing like a pound a day. He bought us a huge coffin-shaped structure, which he offered for five pesetas a day, and as we expected to require it for less than a week, no bargaining was made. We agreed to the price, and it was dear in the end, for we kept the dinghy for more than three weeks and had to pay the owner double what the thing had cost when it was new. We tugged that coffin with us all over Vigo Bay. It reminded me of Joe Elvin's old dinghy, but it was larger than his and had a greater variety of objectionable habits. Newton's third law of motion was well illustrated by it, and we learnt how hard the Joan can pull when necessary. When the Joan was at anchor and the wind and stream were parallel with her keel, the coffin aligned itself similarly and was more or less at peace. At any rate, it then merely made a noise. If one of these conditions was not complied with, the coffin turned broadside on. While we were at anchor, it generally banged us about. Of course, it had no fender. When it was towed, it moved on its side, giving each side a wetting as it navigated itself to and fro. When the breeze dropped, each wave, small or large, threw the coffin into the air where it remained suspended for a moment before falling with a resounding thud upon the sea again. Its oars had no distinct blades. A single thole was provided for each oar, which had a tiny loop of frayed rope to slip over the pin. Byford and I never learned which side of the pin the oar should go. Its painter was of esperato grass, which makes into a rope hard, dry, unyielding and weak. It is cheap in price and dear in use. Even the habitual users said it was no good. When we finally returned the coffin to its owner, we had several interesting and terrific debates. At first we employed Ali Baba as a go-between, telling him to explain to the owner that he was a scoundrel and that we would not pay him such an exorbitant price as he demanded for his wretched boat. Ali promised to do the best he could for us, but instead I think he arranged a little dramatic scene in which he appealed to the owner on our behalf in our presence. At first the owner said, No, senor, si, senor, to Ali, but in a little while his tone changed. He threw up his arms and appealed to the heavens, omitting to call Ali by the polite senor, and shouted curtly, No, and si. We did not understand what they were talking about, but we enjoyed it. I offered him all kinds of terms, which he rejected disdainfully. In the end, 
He offered to let us have the dinghy for another three days and to stand as a drink if we paid the hire up to date. As it was the only thing we were likely to get, we closed with this offer, sorrowfully parted with our pesetas and joyfully ordered the most expensive drink within the command of our Spanish. Some of the English residents in Vigo were interested in the Joan, but few extended this interest to the crew. It was a great deal our own fault. The Joan is a tiny ship, and making a toilet is not a task to be undertaken for mere vanity's sake. We generally shock the better-dressed people, but on the other hand, ragged labourers used to accost us familiarly. Two or three times we painfully choked ourselves with collar and tie and sweated into the town. We were then so unremarkable in appearance that nobody except the shopkeepers took any notice of us. The shopkeepers were duly impressed by the evidence of our wealth and of our foreign extraction, and they worked multiplication sums in the metric system, a system in which multiplication is very easy. Several men invited us to tea. I distinctly remember three that did this. Each of them said that he must consult his wife first, but that no doubt she would be agreeable. One man even told us at what hour he would come to fetch us. He did this as a kindly warning to make ourselves presentable. It was a hot afternoon, and we were agreeably occupied in the shady cabin, I reminded the mate that he would have to be ready by five o'clock, but he grunted and went on passing the time agreeably to himself. But the reminder began to spoil the afternoon for him because he worried about the invitation. I do hope that man won't come and fetch us out to tea, he said after a while. I'll have to wash and shave and put on my best trousers if he does. That reminds me, they're wet. I must hang them out to dry. Neither of us attempted to get ready and we were wise. Nobody came to fetch us, and we were never really and finally asked out to tea. I suppose the wives were at the bottom of it all. It was another tale when we reached Funchal. No skulking was possible there, for the vice-consul came aboard, and in five minutes he had invited us to dinner in spite of our appearance, in spite of the disreputable look of our ship, in spite of the fact that he hadn't even our own words that we weren't rogues. We were obliged to shave and dress every day there, but then he was a keen yachting man, and Funchal was further away from London than Vigo was. We thought that too much pumping had been required during the five days we were hove to, for at one period this had been necessary every two hours. The boat seems, we thought, ought to be examined and some of them recorked, and there were other small repairs wanted which could be done better by a shipwright than by us. A local paper interviewed us and advertised our needs. Alibaba brought round a carpenter who said he could do wonderful things. He told us that we must have a carriage specially made up to haul the Joan out of the water, as he had no idea how much it would cost, and as I had a good idea that it would cost too much, and that no wonderful things were actually required, I would have nothing to do with him. Several of the Englishmen in Vigo offered to help in the way of advice, and said that they'd talk Spanish for me and find a man to do the work, but they had mostly adopted proverbial Spanish habits, and it was manana, manana, never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. Then we thought we'd find out for ourselves. I swatted at a Spanish grammar, bought a dictionary and walked round the shipyards. It was extremely funny, but we ended up by understanding one another. They would not undertake the job because all their slipways were occupied and they were too busy. On further inquiry, we were assured that in all Spain there wasn't a wall or a wooden causeway for the Joan to lean against while she was cleaned and repaired. We therefore sailed round Vigo Bay to find one. We found a suitable wall on the opposite shore and returned to Vigo where we obtained a letter from somebody who claimed to have authority over the wall. 
The letter contained instructions to the foreman of the wall to let us alone. We bought materials and tools to do the corking ourselves, and then we went away in a hurry to avoid a pressing invitation to attend church. The tide was not convenient that day for us to use the wall, and so we sailed up the bay and discovered the Ensenada de San Simon and San Adrian. The very name Ensenada de San Simon had a powerful effect upon the mate's poetical nature. As we approached it, he warbled hymns. When we reached it, he sang notes that were obviously taken from sentimental love songs, and as soon as the anchor was down, the sails stowed, he searched with many struggles for a bottle of brandy which he had bought in Plymouth as ship's medicine. I think I've done marvellously well, he said, to save this throughout the passage to Vigo. In spite of calms and storms, I remained a teetotaler, but now the time has come. The brandy must be drunk to celebrate our arrival in this delectable spot. Examination showed that the bottle was but a quartern, that it was labelled pale British brandy, and that in smell it resembled varnish of poor quality. All the mate's poetry fizzled away and was replaced by profanity. I'll write a letter to Rigdon, he said. If this stuff can't force something out, why nothing will. The quartern disappeared, but it was awful stuff. Next morning, we saw San Adrian, a couple of miles away. A church was on the waterside. There was a shipyard and a landing place. We sailed close in and went ashore in the dinghy. At high water, you could land at convenient stone steps. When the water left those, you could tie the dinghy alongside a 60-foot hulk so moored as to be an extension of a rough stone jetty. The jetty and the hulk were connected by a rough wooden gangway. When the water was low, the stern of the hulk grounded, but the bow was always afloat. We entered a cafe a few yards from the head of the jetty and drank wine. The proprietress was a large lady, upon whose face we read suspicion of her friends and confirmed hostility to all others. She could not supply us with a meal, certainly not. We walked fifty yards further to the road by a footpath up the cliff. Immediately we discovered another café, a pleasanter area house kept by people of more sociable character. They gave us everything we asked for, and as the day was Sunday, there was a small crowd in the place. We passed a merry hour talking with them all and endeavouring to explain what we said. They had read about us in the local paper so that no introductions were needed. We even managed to make them understand that we wanted the boat corked and a few repairs carried out. The landlord nodded and said that these matters could indeed be done at San Adrian. He astonished us by his drawing of boat sections and his knowledge of corking. He appeared to know just how a boat should be legged up and offered to show me where to place the Joan but I wanted to see the shipwright so that I could be sure he would do the job. Then it turned out that the landlord was the shipwright and the owner of the little shipyard in San Adrian. So next day at high water we came alongside a permanently grounded hulk and there the work was done, and done well at a reasonable price. And although we provided the villagers with a great and never-cloying delight in watching us shave and make tea, we enjoyed our stay there. Getting away from the hulk when we were ready again was very unpleasant, however, for an onshore breeze sprang up and with it a popple of waves which rolled the Joan violently against the hulk before we floated. One night at San Adrian, Byford's stomach took upon itself to ache and next day he was laid out. Soda water, milk and eggs for him all day. And this in a land where vermouth, delicious Italian vermouth, was as cheap as beer in England and where the wine was good at the price of our pre-war beer. He felt it keenly and made violent haste to recover. I went ashore by myself, leaving the mate all the soda water and other good things. My meal was a beefsteak and chips, two eggs fried in oil, bread, wine and coffee. 
all were good, and the cost was two and a half pesetas, which at the rate of 33 to the pound sterling came to 18 pence, as accurately as I care to work it out. They made a handsome profit, too, for they charged extra to strangers in their land. We rode to Redondella one evening in our coffin. This town is not to be seen from the Ensenada, for it is hidden in one of the creeks behind the hills. We tied the dinghy to the sea wall, and a group of local fishermen assured us it would be safe if left there. We did the usual thing by the town, looked at the houses and inhabitants, and bought wine and a dinner. At nine o'clock, with darkness coming and the tide ebbing, we returned for our boat. It had gone. We searched carefully up and down, but it was not to be found. Somebody had gone off with it, and as the water was dropping fast, we had to do something quickly or stay there for the night. A policeman was found, one of the several kinds that are to be seen in Spanish towns. With much trouble, I got him to understand our difficulty, and then he explained that it was no business of his and that we must go to the harbour master. He turned away, but we plucked at his sleeve. Would he take us to the senor in question? And after a little persuasion, he took us to the harbour master's official residence, not a dozen steps away. The harbour master was at dinner with his wife and family. My Spanish was put to a severe test. The man refused to understand and wanted us to go away. This we would not do. I worried him slowly and persistently, and presently his wife helped us. She, kind soul, understood what I said. At last, seeing everyone was against him, even the policeman downstairs kept calling up and telling him all about it. He put on his coat and hat, both of which were beautifully decorated with gold buttons and braid, and he came out with us. I explained everything to him, and again, Byford encouraged him with hoorays, but he was no more able to find our dinghy than we had been. The town began to collect, and then a pair of charming senoritas told the captain that they had seen some lads take the boat away. Byford and I became interested in these ladies. He worked with both eyes, and I with my tongue, and they laughed at us both. One of them suddenly called out, There's the boat, and we saw a couple of lads rowing it to the bank. We got in quickly, and although loath to leave the friends we seemed likely to make, we had to hurry away. The last I saw of the business was the captain quarrelling fiercely with the lads, and the crowd cheering everybody. We just managed to push over the shoaling waters into the Ensenada in time. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.